Uh, this morning, we are really blessed to have a, a friend of, of Calvary Chapel surprised back again. Uh, a couple years ago, Charlie Campbell was here with us, and if you're familiar at all with Charlie's ministry, you know that he truly has a gift that God has given him uh, in helping you know, get, equip us as Christians with, with ammunition, if you would, to be able to defend our faith, why we believe what we believe, and, and not only to help that encourage us and to strengthen us, but also to give us that, that ammunition, if you would, to, to share our faith with others and to be confident in that. We call it apologetics. But perhaps you've, you've heard things like that or read apologetics-type material before, and it's like, wow, that's, that's really good. That's, that's a lot of great stuff, but I could never repeat that. That's one of the gifts that I believe Charlie has, is he presents it in such an amazing way. It's, you're going to be blown away with the information you get today, but you're going to be able to say, you know what, I could tell my neighbor that. That atheist that works next to me at work that's always given me a hard time about being a Christian, I can take this to, to do that, so to share with him. So I, I, I know you're going to be blessed, and if you've ever asked me about apologetics material, you know I take you right to the bookstore and give you one of Charlie's books and say, read this, or, or point you to his website, always be ready. But uh, we're blessed to have Charlie back with us this morning. So would you give a warm Calvary Chapel surprise welcome to my friend Charlie Campbell. Thanks, Brad. Well, good morning. Thanks for the warm welcome. Great to be back with you. It was 2015, July of 2015 when I was here last. And boy, was it a lot hotter uh, at that time of the year than it is now. So um, great to be with you all. I went out to dinner last night with Pastor Brett. And uh, what a sweet time catching up with him. He, he's, a, he's a dear brother in the Lord. You guys are blessed to have a great pastor who not only loves the Lord, but has great concern and love for you all as well. So yeah, praise, praise the Lord. Well, let's, let's get into God's word together. Would you open up with me to Psalm chapter 19, please? My wife is here with me this morning. She wasn't here with me last time. If you'd like to meet her, we'll be out in the uh, foyer after the service. My, my five kids are with their grandparents down in Phoenix. We're here on spring break uh, visiting my wife's family. So it worked out well to, to be able to share with you here today. I'm thankful for the opportunity. Let's go ahead and pray one more time. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for this time. God, we thank you for this church and all that you're doing here in surprise. Lord, what a blessing to uh, be here today and to, to see you at work. And God, we do pray as we consider an important topic today that you would use this time to encourage our hearts and strengthen us in the faith and equip us to be better prepared ambassadors of Christ who are able to answer some of the common questions that people have about you, God. So work to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like for us to consider what is arguably life's most important question. Is it reasonable to believe in God? Is there good evidence that points to his existence? I believe there is, as I know most of you do as well. But for the purpose of encouraging you in your faith and to help equip you, to be better prepared to talk to people who are non-Christians and maybe even atheists and skeptics. This morning, I'd like to lay out a case for a creator. 
More specifically, five different pools of evidence that I believe point toward God's existence. Five reasons I'm convinced God exists, and five reasons I believe anyone who's open-minded enough to really consider the evidence can come to that same conclusion. The first pool of evidence that I'd like to discuss for a few minutes is something that David mentioned in Psalm chapter 19, in the first few verses. He says there that the heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. The Bible indicates here in Psalm chapter 19 and again in Romans chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul picks up this same idea, that the stars above us, the cosmos, testify to the fact that there is a creator. Friend, have you ever walked outside on a dark, clear night away from the lights of the city and looked up and just been in awe of the stars? Abraham Lincoln said this long ago. He said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he could look up into the heavens and say that there is no God, end quote. I agree with Abraham Lincoln, and this is the first evidence for God that I'd like to discuss with you. The cosmos the cosmos. Philosophers and thinkers down through the centuries have concluded that there are really only three different possibilities to explain its existence. Some have said it has always been. Uh, It's eternal, and therefore there's no God required for its existence. It has just always been around. A second possibility people have suggested is that it created itself. Again, no need for God. It brought itself into existence. Or there's a third possibility, and that is that it was created by an immaterial creative agent. Of course, also known as God. Let's walk through these three different options for a couple of minutes and see which is the most reasonable to believe. The first option that the universe has always been or is eternal, has now been utterly rejected by the scientific community. Why is that? Well, because the scientific evidence against an eternal universe has demolished this theory. Isn't that interesting? It's the scientific evidence. It's not a group of theologians or pastors who got together and were brainstorming and trying to come up with some way to scratch option number one off the list. No, the scientific community has scratched option number one off the list. Why is that? Well, they're pointing to the discoveries of the background radiation echo, the second law of thermodynamics, and the motion of the galaxies, all of which have led them now to conclude that the universe had a beginning. Stephen Hawking, the renowned late astronomer from Cambridge University, agreed before his death that this was the consensus, really, in the scientific community. He said this, almost everyone believes that the universe and time itself had a, what word does he use? Beginning. Well, that's interesting. This is in perfect harmony with what the Bible teaches 
where so? Very first verse, <laughs> Genesis chapter one, verse one says in the what? beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible indicates here right out the gate in the very first verse that the universe is finite. It had a beginning exactly like the scientific community finally discovered 3,000 years after Moses pinned those words. They could have known this a lot sooner had they read the Bible. Arnold Penzias, who was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering some of the scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning, agrees that the, the scientific data lines right up with the Bible. In an interview in the New York Times, Penzias said this, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole, end quote. Well, because the universe had a beginning, that rules out option number one, doesn't it? So if you're a note taker, you can just draw a line right through option number one. The scientific community scratched that one off the list. Very well. Now that leaves us with two options to explain the existence of the universe. Let's talk about option two for a moment. This option that the universe created itself is fraught with problems as you might imagine. The idea that anything could create itself is absurd for it would have to exist and not exist at the same time. Friends, that's irrational. For something to create itself, it would have to be before it even was. This violates an ironclad law of knowledge called the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction states that A, whatever that happens to be, cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. For example, you can't be at church right now and not at church right now. You're either here or you're not here. You might be asleep already, but you are here. So then we think it's absurd to suggest that the universe existed and didn't exist at the same time, but that is precisely what would be required for the universe to have created itself. So surely the universe did not create itself. And yet this is what leading atheist thinkers believe. How do they think the universe created itself? Well, many of them have concluded, like Richard Dawkins, that the universe, Dawkins says, evolved literally out of nothing. It evolved literally out of nothing. Stephen Hawking said the same thing, that the universe came from nothing. These men, considered by some to be two of the brightest atheists on the planet, say once there was nothing, and that nothingness managed to turn itself into all of the billions of galaxies, stars, planets, energy, matter that exists in the entire universe. Friends, surely you don't buy this. It seems patently obvious to me that nothing cannot do something. Nothing can't see, smell, act, think, let alone create something. Can you imagine going home today and turning on the news 
and hearing a newscaster say something like, nothing caught doing something on film. <laughs> Tune in at 11 and see the footage. <laughs> Why do you laugh? Because it can't happen, can it? And it never has happened. So there are three options for the existence of the universe. Number one, it's always been. Number two, it created itself. Or number three, it was created by God. Option one and two can be thrown out purely on scientific and philosophical grounds. You don't even have to bring the Bible into the debate to scratch options one and two off the list. We can conclude almost by default that option three is the most reasonable of the three options. And I'll continue to strengthen my case as we move along. But the skeptic says, hold on a second here, Charlie. If the cosmos requires a creator, who made God if he exists? Well, they answer the question concisely, nobody made God. Unlike the finite physical universe that demands a creator, God does not need a creator. Why is that? Well, because God is eternal. He's always existed and he is immaterial. He's a spirit. He's not made up of physical parts that need assembly. The Bible affirms this in multiple places. For example, in Psalm 90, verse 2, written by Moses, he says of God, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is without beginning. It's hard for our three-pound brains to fathom that, but this is what the Bible indicates. But Jesus also indicated in John 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. So you put those two truths together and we learn from the Bible that God is an eternal spirit and therefore does not need a creator or someone to have brought him into existence. But the physical universe falls into an entirely different category. As the scientific discoveries have shown, it has not always existed, and anything that begins to exist requires a cause or maker, because things don't just pop into existence all on their own. Nothing does not produce something. Okay, Charlie, I understand what you're saying, but you Christians really believe that God has just always existed? That's impossible. Well, before our friend scoffs at the fact God has always existed, he needs to keep in mind that something or someone must have always existed. Do you realize that? Think through this with me. If nothing represented by the blackness here in this circle, if nothing cannot produce something and yet something exists like the universe, then a creative agent must have always existed. Why do I conclude that? Well, in order to bring that which exists into being. Did I lose some of you? Who won't raise your hand this morning no matter what I ask? Any of you? Okay, a couple of you. I see you there, ma'am. That's good. She's honest. She's like, I won't raise my hand. <laughs> Let me break it down. I'll make it more simple. Follow, follow the force of the logic here. I think this is a very logical argument. If there ever was a time that absolutely nothing existed, nothing would exist now. But something does exist now. Therefore, there was never a time that absolutely nothing existed. You, you see the, the flow of the argument there? This is a reasonable conclusion. 
So we have no problem believing that God is the one who always existed. And because that is the case, the simple answer to the challenging question, who made God, is no one. No one made God. God's eternal. The universe, though, is not eternal, as the scientific evidence has shown. And therefore, it does require a maker. Oh, Charlie, I still think it's foolish to believe in something you can't see. This God that you keep speaking of. I don't. Let's imagine I have a painting up here this morning. And this is a scenario. You can take this home with you. This is an easy scenario to walk someone through. I walk people through this scenario lots of times on planes and sitting next to people. I'll say, let's just imagine I have a painting right here on the plane. Or there at work on the lunch break, wherever you happen to be. And then you ask them this question. What? Or when you see a painting, what proof do you need to conclude a painter exists? What proof do you need? Well, the obvious answer, if they can't spot it, is nothing besides the painting. The painting all on its own is sufficient proof there was a painter. You do not need to see the painter to know he or she exists. In fact, this painting on the screen is a painting I've used in presentations now for several years. As you can tell, it's a painting of Jesus uh, walking on water. Now, I had no idea who the artist was. But a year or two ago, I was giving this very presentation at a Calvary Chapel in Gilbert, uh, about an hour and a half southeast of here. And when I was giving this presentation, I put the picture of Jesus' feet up there on the water, on the screen. I saw people in the congregation start whispering to each other, and they're poking each other. I was like, whoa, what's going on with that painting? I, I thought, you know, this did not go over well. Maybe I need to change the graphic or something. But Well, after the, the teaching was over, about five people came up to me after the service. They said, you know that painting with Jesus walking on the water that you used in your presentation? I said, yeah, what about it? Why was everyone poking each other? The guy who painted that painting goes to this church. <laughs> and he's here today. You got to meet him. And so I had the privilege a couple minutes later of being introduced to him, and we had a great chat. And he was happy to see that his painting was being used in some of my presentations. But I'll tell you this. All the years that I used that painting, I knew there was a painter. Never had met him face to face yet. Never had seen him with my own eyes, but I knew there was a painter out there, dead or alive. I knew there was a painter, and the reason why is because the painting would not be there if the painter didn't exist. And so it is with the universe and God. You do not need to see God in order to conclude he exists. The universe, like a gigantic painting, is evidence in itself that God exists. So the first evidence for God's existence Number one is the cosmos. Let's consider a second pool of evidence for God's existence, the conditions for life. The conditions for life. What am I talking about? Well, the more scientists study the universe, the more they discover that conditions in the universe appear to have been extremely fine-tuned to permit life. Numerous conditions have now been identified that have to have just the right values. In other words, they need to, they need to be tuned to just the right degree for any kind of conceivable physical life 
to exist in the universe. If any of these conditions were to change even a little, scientists tell us that the universe would be absolutely hostile to life, incapable of supporting it, most likely because they say it would turn into all hydrogen. That doesn't sound friendly. So keep in mind, though, that this conclusion is not something that Christian scientists have concocted in order to get you to believe there's an intelligent designer behind the universe. No, this is something that's being widely acknowledged today by scientists of every persuasion. Even atheist scientists are acknowledging this. Stephen Hawking, for example, a man who certainly did not consider himself a Christian, said this. He said, the universe and the laws of physics seem to have been specifically designed for us. If any of about 40 physical qualities had more than slightly different values, life as we know it could not exist. Either atoms would not be stable, or they wouldn't combine into molecules, or the stars wouldn't form the heavier elements, or the universe would collapse before life could develop, and so on. When he speaks of these 40 or so different physical qualities that appear to have been specifically dialed in and tuned for life to exist, he's speaking about things like the force of gravity, can't tinker with it. Uh, the speed of light, can't change it, or you're going to mess up everything. Uh, the, the mass of an electron, the force that binds subatomic particles together within the nuclei of atoms, can't change those levels. The energy levels in carbon atoms. You tinker with any of these things, even in the slightest degree, and you're going to wreak havoc across the universe. Dr. Francis Collins, well-known scientist here in the U.S. and former head of the Human Genome Project, states that if any of these constants, these conditions, was off by even one part in a million... Can you imagine knobs in heaven where God controls all the levels of everything? Not that it's actually set up that way, but what if he did? And there was these gigantic knobs up in heaven. Force of gravity had a million little nicks in the knob. He's saying you can't turn that knob one millionth without messing everything up. Again, he says if these things were off by even one part in a million or even in some cases, he says, by one part in a million million, there would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. That's how finely tuned things are. Well, Charlie, maybe the universe just ended up this way by chance. I don't think so. Donald Page of Princeton's Institute for Advanced Science recently calculated the odds against our universe randomly taking a form suitable for life as one in 10 billion to the 124th power. Friends, I don't know how far along you got in your mathematics studies, <laughs> but I think you could agree with me that these are such astronomical odds, it's reasonable to conclude that the universe did not end up with these finely tuned conditions apart from an incredibly intelligent and powerful designer. And that's what many cosmologists and physicists are concluding today. That something supernatural appears to be going on behind the scenes. Well, this conclusion that God may be behind it all, of course, does not sit well with atheists who are committed to a godless universe. So where do they run? How do they explain the fine-tuning of the universe? 
they do acknowledge that what appears to be fine-tuning exists. So what do they do with those facts? Well, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, and other prominent atheists seek to explain away the fine-tuning of the universe with a hypothesis straight out of science fiction called the multiverse. The multiverse? What's that? Well, their multiverse hypothesis says there might be trillions of universes, thus the term multiverse, and that somewhere in this gigantic mix of universes, a finely tuned universe will appear by chance alone, and we humans just happen to find ourselves living in that one particular finely tuned universe, so there's no need to believe in God, they say. Our universe ended up this way by chance alone. Well, friends, this is a desperate theory atheists have come up with. What evidence is there for a multiverse? Let me put a picture on the screen of it. <laughs> there is none. There's not a shred of evidence, not the smallest, tiniest bit of evidence that there is even one universe outside of ours let alone trillions of universes. I find it a bit ironic that atheists regularly tout their interest in observational evidence. Oh, you silly Christians, you believe in this God you can't even see. We don't do that. No, we like telescopes and microscopes, tangible, visible evidence. Yet when faced with the visible evidence the verifiable evidence of the fine-tuning of the universe, they retreat to a hypothesis that has zero observational evidence to support it. None. And even if their multiverse theory was correct, and there are trillions of universes, that does not end the debate over the existence of God, for the question would remain, how did those universes come into existence? <laughs> That's all it does. It just widens the question. The debate used to be, how did our universe come into existence? But now we have trillions of more. Oh, well, that just widens the question. How do these trillions of universes come into existence? Nothing doesn't produce something. I think the multiverse theory actually makes the atheist dilemma more difficult. For if the multiverse theory were true, nothing not only made one universe, nothing made a lot of universes. Which, of course is preposterous. So the multiverse theory does nothing to undermine or weaken our case that an intelligent designer is the best explanation for the fine-tuning uh, of the universe that we've discovered. All right, let's move along. There's a third pool of evidence that God exists, the complexity of life. The complexity of life. Imagine with me for a moment that you have found yourself shipwrecked on an island somewhere in the South Pacific, wondering if there might be any civilized life on the island that may be able to help you get home one day. You begin uh, a search. You walk along the shoreline and you discover what appears to be a well-designed arrowhead. Question for you. After this discovery, what do you think the chances are that human life might exist on the island? Pretty good, right? Might not be the kind of people you're hoping to run into. 
<laughs> Might be a band of headhunters or something. But continuing your search, you walk along the beach another hundred yards, only to find what appears to be a canoe sitting there on the beach. Then a hundred yards down the beach, you discover some letters written in the sand. The letters spell out the simple word welcome. Maybe the headhunters are glad someone's finally shown up. I don't know, but what if someone who survived that shipwreck with you were, su were to suggest that the arrowhead, the canoe, and a few letters in the sand might actually just be the result of thousands of years of wind and waves just crashing up there along the shore? Well, I think you would quickly disagree with that assessment. I would. I think it's wiser to conclude that there was intelligence behind these three discoveries. Why, though, would we so confidently and so quickly assume that there's a designer behind those three things we just found on the beach? Well, the reason why is because design is not hard to recognize. Design is not hard to recognize. You see an arrowhead, you recognize design. A canoe, design. A few letters in the sand, it takes your brain about half a second to realize design. You can look at anything in this room and see that there was intelligence that was put into it. Well, everywhere we look on our planet, we find amazingly complex life forms that are millions of times more complex than arrowheads and canoes and a few letters in the sand. This amazing complexity that permeates all of life is another reason why more and more scientists today are concluding that an intelligent designer must exist. Now, as you've probably seen on social media, there are atheists out there touting the supposed fact that nearly all scientists in the world are atheists. They've restated this popular talking point so often that I think a lot of people believe them. Well, it's not true. In reality, fewer than 30% of practicing scientists in the world today are atheists. And about 40% of professional natural scientists are practicing Christians. And many others are theists of other kinds. Jews, Muslims, and so on. And one of the underlying factors influencing these scientists' decisions to believe in a creator is the amazing complexity that they've seen with their own eyes under a microscope as they've looked at different living organisms. Take, for example, the human body. Talk about a living organism that's on display for the glory of God. The human body in itself is an amazing testament to God's existence. Consider a few facts about the body. The human body has an amazingly complex nervous system, cardiovascular system, reproductive capability, skeletal system, muscle system, digestive system, ability to heal itself and fight off diseases. Just to mention a few marvels related to the human body. I have a hard time believing that male and female human bodies came into existence by some mindless process, apart from an incredibly intelligent designer. You could leave the barren side of a mountain, exposed to wind, rain, the forces of nature, chance, and millions of years of time, and you would never even get a Mount Rushmore 
let alone a living, breathing human being. No one alive today would believe that the faces of Mount Rushmore came about by millions of years of erosion, wind, rain, and undirected random action. Yet atheists believe that real-life human beings with 206 bones, 640 muscles, and hearts that beat over 100,000 times a day are the product of a mindless, random series of accidents and mutations. Well, we don't have enough faith to believe that. Consider the human brain. Scientists tell us that the human brain weighing in with its 100 billion neurons at about three pounds is a machine more wonderful than any device by humans and that it holds enough information to fill some 20 million books. Incredible. Consider the human heart. The heart, a muscle about the size of a man's fist, contracts and forces blood through 60,000 miles. This is incredible. 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body. Every hour, it pumps about 75 gallons of blood, totaling more than 50,000 gallons every month. I like to ask atheists, what do they think evolved first? The heart, the blood, or the veins? Oh, they hate that question. (laughs) When you start thinking through that question, you realize how preposterous evolution is. They say the heart. I think the heart, the heart evolved first. Okay, what did it pump? No blood yet. That's very complicated. That had to have come later. (laughs) So what did it pump? Oh, all right. Well, the vein, uh, the blood evolved first. Okay, well then, how'd the blood get where it needed to go? No heart to pump it. No veins to carry it. Uh, Okay, well, the veins evolved first. Okay, what were they attached to? What did they carry? No blood, no heart. You see how that works? You need all three in place at the same time. That requires creation, though, doesn't it? To help you ponder how astonishing it is that your heart pumps more than 50,000 gallons of blood a month, consider this the average backyard pool in America holds 15,000 gallons of water. Your heart pumps more than three times that amount every 30 days. Consider your eyes. Human eyes are composed of more than 2 million working parts. How many parts in the canoe we found on the beach? A handful of parts? Who knows? Not, Not many. We look at a canoe and we think, design. Oh, design. Human eyes, 2 million parts. Yeah, evolution. (laughs) The eye is a ball with a lens on one side. It has a light-sensitive retina made up of rods and cones inside the other. The lens itself has a sturdy protective covering called a cornea that sits over an iris designed to protect the eye from excessive light. The eye contains an amazing watery substance that's replaced every four hours. Tear glands continuously flush the outside clean. An eyelid sweeps the secretions over The eye, the cornea, to keep it moist. Eyelashes protect it from dust. And extraordinarily fine-tuned muscles are attached to the eye that move the eye and aid in its ability to quickly focus on objects far more complicated than the greatest autofocus camera today that took hundreds of people decades to develop. Not only... Does the body as a whole and the individual organs point to an intelligent designer? So does every living cell in your body. 
In Charles Darwin's day, shells appeared to be little unsophisticated globs of jello, mysterious little parts of life that no one could see into. But now that we have the ability to peer into cells with electron microscopes, we've discovered that life down at the cellular level is immeasurably more complex than Charles Darwin ever dreamed. Speaking about the cell, Dr. Walter Bradley, a respected scientist and author of books on the cell, said this. He said, a one-cell organism is more complicated than anything we've been able to recreate through supercomputers. Nothing on the planet we've ever designed is more complicated than what's going on in a single living cell. According to Nobel Prize winner Linus Pauling, widely regarded as the greatest chemist of the 20th century, one living cell in the human body is more complex than New York City. Have you been to New York City? It is one complex place. Eight million people scurrying about every direction, hundreds of skyscrapers, thousands of taxis, subways everywhere, boats going up and down the rivers, planes landing 24 hours a day. Very complex. Imagine packing that kind of complexity into a single cell, a thousandth of an inch in diameter inside your body. That's incredible. And to add to that, your body is comprised of thousands of different kinds of cells, totaling more than 100 trillion in number. Your body makes millions of new cells every second of the day, and all the cells work together. How do the cells know how to work together? How do they know what to do and where to go and what kind of organs to produce and what to do when you cut yourself? Ah, it's the DNA in the cell. This is staggering. Check out this fact. This, think of how thin DNA has to be. The six feet of DNA coiled up inside every one of your body's 100 trillion cells contains a staggering amount of detailed complex information and instruction that tells each cell how to function, where to go, what to do, and so on. Bill Gates, the Founder of Microsoft said this a while back about DNA. He said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. Do you know how much intelligence went into developing Microsoft software? Not quite as much as Apple, but um, <laughs> it's kind of, kind, of, kind of a different story. So, this is an Apple, but a little Apple humor for you. But that raises the question. Where did this staggering amount of complex, detailed information and instruction in a cell's DNA come from? Computer programs do not write themselves. A programmer is always involved. Even if you provide lots of time, a computer program cannot write itself. The same is true with the complex information stored in DNA. Where did it come from? Uh, Non-directed natural causes? I don't think so. This man on the screen, the British molecular biologist Francis Crick, one of the two scientists who discovered DNA, having observed the complexity of DNA, estimated that the odds that intelligent life exists on the earth as the result of non-directed processes to be around 1 in 10 to the 2 billionth power. Now, of course, you're free to believe that life came about by non-directed natural causes. I'll tell you this, though. I wouldn't bet against God's existence with odds like that. 
far wiser to rule out non-directed natural causes and conclude there has to have been an intelligent designer. Now, some of you who might be a skeptic here today, you, you think, well, Charlie, that guy's probably a Christian scientist, and he's just trying to get people to believe in God. No, Francis Crick died a few years ago, a hardened, zealous atheist. But he was dealing with reality, and he came to the conclusion there's no way, the odds are so slim that DNA and how complex it is could have come about apart from intelligence. Here's the odds. And he did all this mathematical work and he came up with this conclusion. So what does an atheist do with mathematic, mathematical odds stacked against you like that? He came up with a whole new theory. Google it sometime. It's called panspermia. He concluded that aliens must have planted life seeds on planet Earth millions of years ago. Anything but God for some people. But see, think this through. Even if it was aliens, that doesn't end the debate over the existence of God. It just widens the question. The question used to be, how did, how did life here on planet Earth come into existence? Now the question is, how in the world did these super intelligent aliens come into existence that were smart enough to create spaceships and seeds to plant on the planet Earth? <sighs> Far wiser to rule all that out and just believe that there's a God. All right, so number one, we have the cosmos. To strengthen our case, we have the conditions for life. Uh, then we just talked about the complexity of life. Let's move, on, move along and consider briefly a fourth pool of evidence, and that is what we call the canon of Scripture. The word canon is a word that simply means standard, and so the canon of Scripture refers to the standard collection of books making up the Bible. Of course, over and over, the authors of the Bible claim to be recording events and writing words God guided them to write. And as you know, the Bible reveals to us very plainly from beginning to end that God exists, what he is like, and what his will is for our lives. Well, the skeptic says this doesn't necessarily mean the Bible is true. And he's right, but don't misunderstand the Christian position. We're not asking people to believe what the Bible says about God just because it says so. No, we want people to believe the Bible because of the wealth of good evidence that has demonstrated the Bible to be trustworthy. I'm talking about its hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. The Bible's amazing internal harmony. The Bible's incredible scientific accuracy and foresight. Thousands of archaeological discoveries. Numerous details in the Bible that have been corroborated by extra-biblical historical sources and so on. I talked about some of these evidences the last time I was here, so I won't elaborate on them again today. If you weren't here for that previous uh, presentation or could use a refresher, you can stop by our table. I've got some books and DVDs out there that can quickly bring you up to speed on these evidences for the Bible. But this is a fourth pool of evidence for the existence of God, the canon of Scripture. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a fifth and final reason we can be confident God exists, and that is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Many who doubt the existence of God today have reassured themselves with this thought. If God 
wanted us to believe in him, he would appear to us. Well, we have to be careful when we talk about just wanting God to appear to us. If he were to do that in all his glory while we were in our sinful fallen condition, the Bible assures us that we would not live through the experience. But what if God was to veil his glory and appear to mankind in the form of a man, someone that humans could really relate with? What kind of a man would God be? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that if God became a man, he would live a holy life. His words would be the most insightful, encouraging, piercing, impactful words ever spoken. And I think it's reasonable to expect that he would perform a variety of different miracles, not only as a demonstration of his love, but also to help authenticate who he was. Hmm. Has anyone ever walked the earth who claimed to be God, who lived an absolutely holy life, performed numerous miracles, and whose words were unarguably the most insightful, influential words ever spoken? Maybe Muhammad? No. He never claimed to be God. He never performed any miracles, as the Quran attests, and he struggled with sin, as even he himself acknowledged. What about Buddha? Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism. Again, the answer is no. He never claimed to be God. In fact, he denied it, and he even acknowledges he struggled with activities he knew to be wrong. Of all the people who have ever lived, only Jesus Christ claimed to be God, lived a holy life, performed numerous miracles, and spoke words that have impacted the world like no one else's. When someone tells me if God really exists, he should appear to us, I like to point out to them that this is something God has already done. The Bible tells us that Jesus was God in human flesh. And Jesus himself made that clear in verses like John 5, 18 and chapter 8, verse 58. Well, the skeptic says, Charlie, that doesn't mean that he was God. Anybody could make the claim. And the skeptic's right. Anybody could make the kinds of claims Jesus made, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus did not just claim to be God. He proved that he was God by doing things only God can do, like healing the eyes of those who are blind. He opened those up. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. He walked on water. Try that at the next baptism. Uh, he lived a sinless life. He rose from the grave three days after he was put to death. And then 40 days after that, he ascended visibly into heaven from the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem. These are just a few of the miracles the disciples recorded for us in the New Testament that helped substantiate Jesus' claims to deity. Well, hold, hold on a second here, Charlie. That doesn't mean that what the disciples said about him was actually true. They might have just made up the whole story about Jesus. Well, we know that the disciples did not just invent Jesus. Why is that? Well, more than 30 extra biblical sources mention Jesus within 150 years of his life, including Roman historians like Cornelius Tacitus and Suetonius. Uh, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote, about him. 
Well, Jesus' disciples might have just made up the stories about his miracles then. Maybe he was a real person, but that doesn't mean that he did all those miracles the disciples say he did. Well, I'm not sure what their motivation would have been for doing that. Liars lie to get out of trouble or to gain some type of advantage or benefit. But what the early Christians said about Jesus didn't get them out of trouble or result in any kind of benefit. What they said and wrote about Jesus got them in trouble. What they received was rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. That, to me, is compelling evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus. So, in addition to the cosmos, the conditions for life, the complexity of life, and the canon of Scripture, we have a fifth reason you can be confident God exists, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Friends, this evidence from cosmology, biology, philosophy, history, and the Bible today is a reminder that there is a God. If you've placed your faith in the God of the Bible, your faith is not rooted in wishful thinking. You haven't followed after cleverly devised fables. No, your faith is grounded in reality. There's good, intellectually satisfying evidence that the God of the Bible really does exist. And what good news this is. You're not the result of some gigantic cosmic accident. You're not just some conglomeration of cells wandering around without meaning on a random planet in a purposeless universe. You're not the result of millions of years of evolution and mutation. No, you are one of God's creations He formed you in your mother's womb. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God has a purpose for your existence. Do you know that? God loves you and he created you so that you might enjoy a personal, intimate, close relationship with him, not only through this life, but all through eternity. Do you have that kind of relationship with your maker? I know most of you do. If not, you can. And the reason why is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God in the flesh, your maker, out of his great love for you, suffered and died on that cruel wooden Roman cross. And there's a demonic fly attacking me. (laughs) Right when you get into the gospel. Why would Jesus go through that, though? The Bible says it was to take the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved from eternity in hell and be brought back into a relationship with God. Jesus, of course, rose from the grave three days later, and today he offers all mankind the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. What a gracious offer that is. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting life peace with God. I don't know what you normally get for Christmas, but this is way better. Way better. How do you receive that gift? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. How easy is that? God did all the hard work. He's just asking you to believe, to place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross to save you. And you can do that today. 
God's a prayer away. You can call out to him today and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the, the name of the Lord will be saved. So, friend, don't put it off. If you need to be forgiven of your sins today, call upon the name of the Lord even before you leave this place today. Amen? Amen. Well, we've covered a lot here in the last 50 minutes or so. If you'd like to review anything we've talked about today or maybe share this presentation with a friend, we have DVDs and CDs of the entire presentation uh, available at my table. We've also released several new DVDs since I was here three years ago. This one on the Bible, Scientific Accuracy and foresight. Uh, another one on if God is loving, why does he allow evil and suffering? Uh, and then a newer one on archaeological evidence for the Bible as well. Um, if you stop by the table, you'll see we've got quite a few. There's 33 DVDs now. One other resource, though, I want to quickly mention is this tiny USB flash drive. Um, with the help of technology, we've been able to take the entire library of DVDs, all 33 of them, and put them on that flash drive that's the size of a AA battery. You can stick it right into the USB port on your television and pull up any of our videos right there on your TV. You can stick it into a computer, PC, laptop, whatever you use, uh, and watch the videos there. Or you can even transfer the videos through your laptop onto your iPad iPhone or Samsung tablet, whatever you use nowadays to watch videos. So if you feel like you could use some additional help contending for the faith and having answers for people in the cults and critics of Christianity, we've got some resources out there uh, today that can help you do that. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. I'll hand things back over to Pastor Brett. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word as we've considered uh, everything from the cosmos all the way down to the cells in our body. Uh, Lord, it's easy to conclude that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and the heavens declare your glory. God, we want to stand strong in that reality that you do exist. You're not a mythological deity or the invention of man. You are the true and the living God who can be known and trusted and called upon. And so, Lord, we want to do that. We worship you today. We love you. Such a blessing to know you. God, we do pray for our friends and family members who are going through this life without you, God. We pray for their salvation today. We ask that you would draw them to yourself, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.